scriptures from First uh, Peter four twelve through nineteen. It says, "Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed." The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should be, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to complete. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Jump right in to the scripture this morning. If you look with me again at verses 12. It said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice or be glad, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, as we've been journeying through 1 Peter, we've seen that these believers, they were Gentiles who have been brought to faith in Jesus, and they're experiencing persecution, mainly through being excluded and slandered by their society. And a little bit of context thinking about this, that these Gentiles' experience would be very different in many ways than those who had been Jews and become believers in Jesus. Because the Jewish people had a history of being a marginalized and oppressed minority. I mean, that was how their, their people was birthed out of slavery in Egypt, right? And they had always been a small nation compared to the surrounding nations. So many times they had been ones on the receiving end of oppression and of persecution. But for these Gentiles in this church that Peter's writing to, they had pretty good lives <laughs> before they gave their lives to Jesus. They were part of their pagan society and they fit right in. Nobody had them on the outside. They were on the inside. And now they've surrendered their lives to God, and instead of their lives getting better, what happened? They got harder. Because they had fit in in this world before they became Christians, and suddenly they're experiencing what it feels like to be pushed to the margins. Now they're understanding what it means for people to be disappointed in them because of their faith and their lifestyle in Jesus, or for people to even speak ill of them because of it. And they're going, is this the blessing of God? We surrender our lives to him and things get worse. 
And so Peter is having to speak to them and share insight that Jewish believers in Jesus would have just inherited because that was part of their history. They understood that God's people don't fit in in this world. They understood that there's suffering that is part of being set apart as God's chosen people. And so Peter says to them, look, friends, you shouldn't be surprised that you're going through these fiery ordeals. And I think he uses that word fiery intentionally. He's wanting to draw their attention to this idea of being tested by fire. If we look in the book of Proverbs, chapter 17, verse 3. Proverbs 17, verse 3. It says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And how does he do it? By fire. In the same way that silver and gold are refined and purified when they're in the heat of the crucible, God refines and purifies the hearts of his people when we go through suffering in this world, particularly the suffering that is specific to our commitment to Jesus that causes us to not fully fit in. He tells them they shouldn't be surprised, but instead they should be glad. They should rejoice. Now this is the kind of crazy talk in the spirit that the people that are just in the flesh are like, y'all are nuts. What do you mean you're supposed to be glad and rejoice that you're suffering? That doesn't make any sense. From a worldly perspective, it doesn't. But these fiery trials are refining and testing the faith of God's people to purify them so they might be prepared for ultimate joy. It's the picture here of being able to take gladness in something that is hard and sacrificial because you know the payback for it is going to be well worth it. Why does anybody go to work? Is work fun? If your job is fun, there are other people here who want your car. <laughs> work is hard. Why can you take gladness in having a job? Because the reward for it is food on your table, food for your children, clothing for your kids, the ability to get medical treatment when it's needed, right? So we can take gladness this morning in employment, even though it's hard, because the reward is worth it. In the same way, Peter's explaining to these baby Christians that, look, guys, don't be surprised that you're suffering, but you can actually be glad that you're suffering, because the reward for it, the thing that God is preparing you for through it, will be more than worthwhile. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 13. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How
how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather Friends, in God's perfect world, before sin came into the picture, there would have been no hardship. There would have been no suffering as discipline because we wouldn't have needed discipline. Can you imagine, parents, if your children were born without any inclination to do anything wrong? If they never broke a rule, if they never needed to be corrected, if they never had to be put in timeout, if they never had to be grounded, then they wouldn't have to suffer discipline because they wouldn't need it. In the same way in God's perfect and ideal world, there would be no suffering because there wouldn't be sin and we wouldn't have an inclination towards sin and there would be no need for God to discipline his children. But in the world that we live in, sin has corrupted everything. We talked about that, right? Everything around us has fallen. Our bodies are fallen. Our society has fallen. There is suffering. God is not the direct cause of it. The sin of humanity is the direct cause of it. But once we surrender our lives to Jesus, he redeems that suffering in our lives because he uses it to make us holy, to make us like himself. And so in the same way that as adults, we can look back and be thankful for the discipline of a parent. God is saying, look, the suffering that you're experiencing, the fiery ordeal, the trials that you're facing, one day when you're spiritually mature, you're going to look back and say, thank you, God, because you use that to shape my heart to look like yours, to prepare me to be part of your bride for all eternity. It doesn't make sense in the flesh, but in the spirit it's clear. And sharing in Christ's sufferings means that we have hope of sharing in his glory, in his resurrection. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. Spirit stopping. Some people stop there. And they don't know what it is that they're saying. And then they get disappointed and jaded because they don't understand what it means to know Christ. You have to keep reading. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. It implies that we follow him into suffering. 
as well as in his glory. And so Peter says to these new believers, you don't need to be surprised that you're suffering. In fact, you can rejoice that you're suffering because God is using it to prepare you to be his holy people. And it proves that you're really in union with his son, Jesus. Because when you're united with him, you will experience suffering with him. If you're seeking to live a godly life, which is the only option for a true Christian, you must expect to face hostility and suffering in this evil world. And I'll add to that to a degree that your unsaved family and friends don't. Because it's a different kind of suffering when we suffer in union with Jesus. A crown of thorns must precede a crown of glory. We must suffer with Christ before we are glorified with him. Jesus didn't handicap this. He said, hey guys, if you want to be my follower, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, die daily, and follow me. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted, because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. All right. Again, this doesn't make sense in the flesh. I just said if you're insulted, you've actually been blessed. If people speak curses over you because you bear the name of Jesus, you're actually blessed. Jesus promised this in Matthew 5.11. We've looked at it already in the series. We'll read it one more time. Matthew 5 verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Look at Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 verse 32. This is Jesus on the cross. And in verse 32, the people say, Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. See, part of joining Jesus in his suffering, Jesus was insulted. And as his followers will experience insult for the name of Jesus that we bear, and when we do, we can know we're in good company because they insulted him. And we can know that he promised that when we receive those insults, we're actually blessed. It's an upside-down kingdom. From a worldly perspective, it doesn't make sense. Look at verse 16. It says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Christian means little Christ, but it wasn't originally a positive title. It was a slur. People wanted to mock and make fun of the people who were followers of Christ, and so they coined them little Christ, Christians, and they would say it to be derogatory. But you know what Christians did? They said, absolutely, that's a privilege. 
that's not a shame. That's a privilege. You call me a little Christ, I'll proudly wear that title. It's no different than in the 70s when people started to call Christians Jesus freaks. It was meant to slur. It was meant to put down. And so then Christians began to embrace the title and say, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they find it's really true? I don't even care if they label me a Jesus freak. There's no disguising the truth. Thank you, DC Talk, for that song. It's a privilege to bear the name of Jesus. And so when insults come our way, we take it as blessing. There is no shame in it, only privilege. Back to verse 15. Here's a reminder to keep us grounded. Some suffering is shameful. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Can I sort of give an amber version here of what I think is happening? It's as though, to use some of the terms that I think would be used now, it's as though somebody were to tell you, hey guys, it's shameful if you suffer because you were a child molester, or because you were a terrorist, or because you gossip. See what I did there? The first three terms are terms that people are like, yeah, people should suffer if they murder. People should suffer if they steal. They should pay for that. People should suffer if they commit criminal activities. And then it's like, oh, and it's also shameful if you suffer because you were prying into other people's business when it wasn't your own. What do you think was happening in the church Peter was writing to? I bet you anything there were members. And it came back to bite them because people found out they were meddling and it tarnished their reputation and they were suffering as a result. And Peter's saying, hey, you can't put that suffering in the privilege category. That's a shame. There are consequences to sin, and those consequences involve suffering. And again, we've talked about this already. We have to be careful to not call our suffering because of sin the privilege of suffering for Christ. If you are committing wrong in your life and it comes back to bite you, that is a suffering that you earned. It is a suffering that does not bring honor to the name of Jesus. And it is there to call you to repentance. God, help my tongue never to speak gossip again. You disciplined me. You showed me it was wrong. God, help me to stay out of business that isn't my own. I suffered rightly because I stuck my toe in where it didn't belong. Church, we have to keep these categories straight because there are people who think they are properly bearing the name of Jesus and suffering for it when actually they're suffering because there's still sinfulness in their lives that brings about the natural consequence of suffering. Look at verses 17 to 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If you look with me at Jeremiah 25, 29, just one example of this from the Old Testament, that God has always said that his judgment on the earth would begin with his people. 
not those who don't claim to know him, but those who do. It says in Jeremiah 25, 29, See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name. This is talking about Jerusalem, which was the capital city of God's chosen people in Israel. And will you indeed go unpunished? You will not go unpunished, for I am calling down a sword on all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. God's judgment begins with his people, and then it extends to those who have rejected him. And the time is now for judgment to begin among God's house, among his children. But look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, 32. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. says, nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. God's judgment starts with Christians. And he allows us to experience his judgment through suffering in this world so that we will be made holy. So that at the final judgment, we're not the ones receiving judgment. This is hard teaching. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear it. The suffering we experience is God's judgment, but it's a gracious judgment because it purifies us as we walk through it. Not because he was the direct cause of it. Hear me, I am not accusing God of being the devil who is out to kill and to destroy. He is not the author of that. But when we are impacted by the enemy's murder and destruction in our world, in our families, God says, I will use that suffering as your judgment that will refine you, that will make your character like mine, so that on the final judgment day, you come into glory, not into guilt. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The righteous are barely saved. That verse always hurts. Not for his mercy, none of us are saved. But in his mercy and his grace, they are more than enough. He's given us everything that we need for a life of godliness, and yet we see the righteous just barely saved. But then it causes us to think, but what about those who don't know him? What about those who reject him? And there's no way around the end. Scripture is clear that it's hell. It's eternal judgment. It's sobering truth. It's reality. It's meant to warn and wake us up that we want to experience his judgment now, not then. We want our families to experience his judgment now, not then. He is extending grace. He wants to save you and your household. He wants to save all people who would put their faith in him. He's gone to to make it possible. We sang about it. That God himself would come and live a human life. 
one thought that I've ever had, every wrong deed that I've ever committed. He said he would take that into himself and that he would suffer the final judgment on my behalf on the cross, whether or not I chose to accept him. He's paid a high price because he loves us and he wants us, but he is holy and he will judge. Either now in this time of grace or then when the determination is heaven or hell. Friends, we want him to be our judge now. Let me be part of the household that gets judged now. Whatever suffering, whatever fiery ordeal, whatever tribulation, God, use it to make me in your image so that I look like your daughter, not a daughter of this world. Verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, meaning those who suffer for doing what's right, those who suffer for bearing the name of Jesus, not those who suffer for doing things that are wrong, that comes back to bite them. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves, or some translations say should trust themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. This word for commit or trust or entrust, it's to hand over something of value, value high value, to the care of another. Saying, God, my life, my soul, my spirit, who I am, I commit it to you. It's yours, it's not mine. Which means that if you allow me to experience suffering, I don't understand it all. I don't have answers, but I trust you with it. I trust my life to you. Why? Because you are my faithful being. You are never changing. Guys, he's never going to pull the surprise turn out of his pocket. He is up front. Who he is is who he says he is. Who he is is who he's always been. How he has acted throughout history is how he continues to act. He is holy. He is loving. He is good. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. The rock that will not move. And he is our creator. It's implied here, if he's the one who gave you life in the first place, then shouldn't he qualify to take care of that life? Those who suffer for doing good should commit themselves, trust themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We aren't called to pursue suffering Hear me, this is not telling you to go be a, put a kick me sign on your back for Jesus, okay? We are not called to pursue suffering, but we are also not called to avoid it. We are called to follow Jesus and trust him, come what may. True commitment to God means trusting him in the suffering, not trusting him to keep the suffering away. Say that again. True commitment to God means trusting Him in the suffering, not trusting Him to keep suffering away. Look with me at Matthew 27. Again, 
in Jesus on the cross. Verse 43. Hear the words of their insults. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. See, there's a false gospel out there that says that if I have enough faith in Jesus, if I trust him enough, then everything in my life will be great. It's a false gospel that's been around since Jesus' time, and it's what fueled their insults of him on the cross. You say you trust God, well, prove it. If you really trust him, he's not going to let you die the worst possible death ever in human history. Have him bring you down from the cross. Again, I think that some of us have been set up to fail by a false gospel that says if you surrender your life to Jesus, he just makes it all each. And don't get me wrong, there are blessings that come from God. And they all come from his grace and his mercy, and we celebrate and enjoy those. But sometimes God allows us, for the sake of our faith, deepening. For the sake of our purification, he allows us to endure suffering. And it's there that we learn what it really means to trust him. I want to tell you the story in closing of a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer and a real estate investor in Chicago in the late 1800s, and he was also a man of faith. He was married, he had five children, one son, four daughters. But everything in this family's life changed in the year 1871. First, with the death of their four year old son to pneumonia his only son. And then second in that year was when the great Chicago fire occurred and much of the real estate that Horatio owned was destroyed and he was ruined financially. One year, his only boy dies, money's gone. Over the next two years, he tried to recover financially for the sake of his family and they were to the point where he thought that they could afford to take a family trip, that they needed that, still dealing with the grief of their son. And so he booked for them to take a ship to Europe for some time away in 1873. But right when they were about to leave, there was a great economic downturn that again affected his investments. And he realized he could not leave his business to go. And so he put his wife and his four remaining daughters on the ship to Europe so that he would then eventually go and meet them in Europe once he had dealt with his business affairs in Chicago. Four days into that ship's journey, it crashed into another ship. Horatio's wife and his four daughters gathered on the deck and they knelt to pray. And their prayer was that God, if it was his will, would rescue them. But if not, that he would enable them to be willing to endure come what may. Nine days later, Horatio received a telegram from his wife that said, Saved alone, what shall I do? After the 
the mom and daughters have prayed within 12 minutes, the ship has sunk. A sailor in a rowboat found Horatio's wife floating on top of a piece of debris and rescued her. She was eventually taken to Wales on a larger ship. All four daughters drowned. When Horatio received word from his wife, he booked on the next ship to leave, to go to Wales, to grieve with his wife, but now all five of their children had been lost. Four days into that journey, the captain called into the cabin of the ship and let him know that they were over the waters where his daughters would have drowned. And it was on that journey to see his wife that Horatio wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pain shall be mine, for in death as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. For Lord, but Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, a song in the night, O my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Mom and Timber overcome. We're going to sing these words as he wrote them. They're a bit different than what we might have grown up singing them from a hymnal. A couple of things I want you to notice about these words that he wrote. The first is, and this is different from a lot of our modern worship, and I'm not saying the modern worship is wrong, but I'm saying there's power in this. Nothing in this song is about what he felt. It's all about what he knew. And what he knew was that his soul could be okay because it had been saved by Jesus. No matter what kind of suffering he faced in this life. And the confidence that his children and his wife and he all knew the Lord meant that he could still praise in the midst of a trial I cannot fathom. 
things that the Lord spoke to me, and maybe it was just for me, but I feel like I should say it as I prepared this week, was that perhaps when we think about the end being near, and that's the context this was in from last week, right? Perhaps if we struggle with fear of what we might suffer, or what we might suffer if things in our country go in a direction that make us scared, perhaps we have fear over those things because we haven't really known what it's like to suffer in union with Jesus. Because if we would understand that, we would look forward to the end because it's when the faith becomes sight. Perhaps we're not all that disconnected from this group of Gentile young believers that Peter wrote to who were used to being right in the mix of things and belonging in this world. And so once they started to feel marginalized, is this your blessing, God? What are you doing? God says, I have something eternal for you. And I'll give you glimpses of it now. You'll know my presence. You'll know my peace. But the reward is then. Will you trust your very life to me, your faithful creator. Can you say these words this morning? Do you know them to be true? What I'm going to do, I'm going to ask those that are at home, if you want to pull up um, as well with my soul on YouTube or something, listen to that and have a prayer time. I'm actually going to turn the live stream off. And we're going to sing in this sanctuary the song. We're going to stand. But these altars are open for people to come and pray. And as we sing these words, if you are confident that you know them in your spirit, there is a God who wants to meet with you this morning to change that. He wants you to know that it's well with your soul. He wants you to know that your sins are forgiven, that they were nailed with Jesus to the cross, and that his blood washes you. He wants you to have the confidence that there's something more than this life waiting for you. If you serve the Lord for a long time, but you've been going through it, and maybe you've just forgotten that you can trust Him in the suffering, maybe it's time to come and just tell Him you're sorry. And restate that claim, God, I trust myself. 